In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Soon after, God created animals, and then us, and we gave them names like Ocelot and Kookaburra. Then we created Philadelphia, and we decided to call it Philly. And we filled it with bowling alleys and dentist's offices. One of those dentists retired last year, and he sold his building to a church. And when the church decided to give away free meals to the neighborhood one Saturday, I was there, standing outside with my microphone. And a guy from across the street walked up to me, haggard, with a cigarette in one hand and a burnt-out voice. And he asked me, what's going on? Oh, so they're, uh, they're a new church and they've got like a giveaway. So these are like chicken dinners. Oh, really so cool. Yeah, I think they're, I think you could probably go ask, they're free. <laughs> My name's Eric, by the way. Rob. Rob, nice to meet you. I'm actually a reporter. I'm just doing a story about the church. Yeah, is that okay? Oh my God. Yeah, Tell sorry. me more crack for sale. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to do with the team? So I'm doing a long story about these guys. They, they're a new church, and it's a story about what it's like to start a new oh, church. So you're not part of it? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just reporting on them. Are you a churchgoer? Not really. I used to be. I was Catholic. When was the last time you went? To church. Yeah. In 30 years. Yeah. Why'd you stop? I just stopped going. How much the last time you were here, church? It's been about a year since I've gone. Right. Why'd you stop going? I don't know. Stop. Other things to do, you know. Yeah. I get that. Two guys standing in front of a church who won't go in. It's a real problem for Christianity. The percentage of people who say they're going to church continues to drop in the U.S. for the last few decades. And to try to solve this problem, to save the faith, a movement of pastors, mostly evangelicals, are turning to the part of America perhaps most obsessed with growth, Silicon Valley. Every year, thousands of pastors start new churches from scratch. They call them church plants. And what has arisen is a world remarkably parallel to the tech industry, with investors and incubators and growth metrics. But for Jesus. There are mogul-like pastors who have grown small churches into megachurches, with congregations in the tens of thousands. They go on book tours, they give TED Talks, and they appear on the many church-planting podcasts. You're listening to the- Yes, you are. Sorry. You messed up my intro. Sorry. All right. You're listening to the newchurches.com Q&A podcast. We need theme music. There are angel investors. It's perhaps the most unironic use of that phrase ever. Mega churches who will donate tens of thousands of dollars a year to help get a new church off the ground. And the same way tech companies are obsessed with their origin stories, getting their start in garages, church plants have their own origin stories, getting their start in, well... Over two decades ago... My wife Amy and I started Life Church in what was then a little two-car garage. As of today, our church meets in many different locations in cities across the United States. This is Startup, the show about what it's really like to start something new. I'm Eric Mennel. For the past six months, I've been hanging out in this world, the church planting world. Longtime listeners of the show might recognize me from earlier seasons. I'm the guy who came out to his boss on this podcast, came out as a Christian. I've attended church plants. I've stopped attending church plants. We'll talk about why a little later. It's a world I've hovered around the edges of for a long time. 
So for the next several weeks, we are going to watch as one new church tries to grow, tries to attract new believers. It might be the most difficult task of any founder in America, convincing someone who doesn't know or even believe in God to change their mind, to join your church. Which brings me to Watson Jones III. I kind of grew up sort of rough, you know, smoking illegal substances, mm-hmm. wasn't doing so well in school. And I had friends, you know, who, who were game-banging hard. I was just a little young thug. Watson is 34, bald with thick-rimmed glasses. He grew up on the south side of Chicago, and he had this really powerful moment when he was 14 years old. He was watching this story on the news about a kid who was running drugs. The kid got caught and had to turn his friends in. And something about that, like, scared me to the core. I just called on the Lord. I got on my knees and was like, Jesus, I need you to change me. And it felt like something happened. I I just felt new. So new that he decided to give his life to God. He wanted to start a church. So he did all the things you do to become a pastor. He went to seminary, worked as a youth minister at a church, and he had a real gift for preaching. This is from one of his early sermons when he was still in training. I remember growing up on the south side of Chicago and my daddy was teaching me how to ride a bike. Your parents ever walked alongside of you while you riding that bike? And I remember we were going down the street and I saw some girls on the porch. Oh yeah, you know when you see them girls on the porch, you gotta get it together. Can't, you ha- can't have your parent holding your hand there. You gotta, you gotta straighten up and fly right. I said, Daddy, get your hands off the handlebars. Man, I got this. Some of us are busy slapping Jesus' hands off the handlebars of our life. There are many of us that are sitting here today. Watson wanted to start a church, but not the kind of church he grew up around. Old, a little stodgy, people in suits singing hymns. He wanted a church for the people most in need of the love he felt when he was saved as a teenager. People who were a little rough, like him. So I really wanted to engage people who Jesus would engage. Jesus was willing to be associated with prostitutes and with tax collectors, which you might equate them to your average drug dealer, because that's how people felt about them, at least. Mm. People who, you know, were not a part of a church. They sometimes are the afterthought. So he had this vision for a new kind of church. He had a gift for preaching, but he still had a lot of questions about how to start a church. Then, in 2013, a 29-year-old Watson decided to go to this conference that was all about how to start and grow new churches. It was in Orlando, Florida, and it was called exponential. It's at a massive megachurch. In a sanctuary that may sit 5,000 people, there were, there were at least 4,000 in the room. Mm-hmm. And, and all of them wanted to start a church or were starting a church or somewhere in that spectrum. Some of what I was seeing was so new to me. Mm. It was so different. They were wearing skinny jeans and they looked real cool. <laughs> and I felt like in my background, we still wearing suits. And I felt like people in those conferences were talking about things that helped relate with people who were not used to going to church. I felt like, you know, they were on the cutting edge. Fundamentally, what these people were doing was disrupting the evangelical Christian church. They had metrics and management tools, books on marketing and finance. And it was all aimed at reaching exactly the people Watson wanted to reach, non-believers. Watson was in. I believe that the only people who are effective were church planters. Mm -hmm. And the rest of these churches, that they need to close or they need to adapt to all of that. 
But there was another thing about the church planting movement that caught Watson's attention, another parallel to Silicon Valley. I saw a lot of white people. But, you know, I'd be the only black in the room because it wasn't really a black thing more than it was a white evangelical thing. People often use the phrase evangelical to mean conservative Christian. But in reality, there are many evangelical churches. And one of the most basic distinctions is between the white evangelical church and the black evangelical church. Historically, the black evangelical church has focused more on building up its existing churches. While recently, the white evangelical church has been very focused on creating new churches, church plants. Watson occupied this interesting middle space in the evangelical church. I felt like more black people needed to be trying to start churches too. You weren't dissuaded by seeing that. You were, in fact, invigorated by seeing that. I was. I saw myself practically dancing between two lines, between the white church and the black church. I danced in the black church because it was my identity, but dance in the evangelical world because that's where a lot of financial partners were. Just like in the tech world, new churches need startup capital. And the most coveted source of that capital is the megachurch, a well-established church with thousands of members who view it as their mission to launch new successful churches. Landing a megachurch can sometimes get you in the neighborhood of $100,000. So Watson worked out a business plan, and I mean that, a literal business plan, a clear idea that he could pitch to raise money. Part one of the pitch, location. Watson landed a church planting residency in Philadelphia, a year and a half long gig where he would apprentice under a successful church planter, a guy named Eric Mason. So, Philly it was. Part two of the pitch, a big hack to save money during the ramp up phase. Scrap the building. I said, man, churches spend too much time focusing on a building and they put so much money into a building He figured they could meet in a coffee shop or a bookstore or something, even his living room. And finally, part three of the pitch, a business partner. No, no, I'm going to give you a picture of myself at this point. Okay, you ready? This is AJ Smith. I'm this white kid with dreadlocks all the way down my back, with a scraggly beard, wearing like moccasins with holes in them, pants that had been patched up a million times, flannels ripped up. AJ's 31 years old now, and like Watson, he'd also been training to plant a church in the inner city. This was at a church across the river from Philly in Camden, New Jersey. And and Eric Mason actually suggested him to me. Eric Mason, again, is the pastor in Philly that Watson was apprenticing under. Eric Mason said, man, you should should talk to AJ. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) You know, at the time, man, he was a he he was a dude who had dreadlocks. He wasn't like a a neat dresser. I don't know. <laughs> Say more about that. He just kind of has his own earthy vibe to him. You know, AJ, if a good day for him is to go sit in the mountains and just sit there by himself, that's a good day for him. That's kind of how he dressed. But he was a nice guy, so I, I said I would look into it. And when he looked into it, he realized AJ actually brought a lot more than just worn out moccasins to the table. AJ had grown up in a church plant, watching it grow to more than a 1,000 people. He'd gone to seminary. He'd run a homeless ministry. Once he got past the dreadlocks, AJ seemed like a great number two guy. I really believe strongly in, like, submitting to African-American leadership if you're in, like, a largely minority setting or minority leadership even. So I'm a white guy. So I say, yeah, man, I love the idea of, like, I want to be in the inner city. I want to plant churches. Let me spend some time, like, under you and just, like, helping you do your thing. Talked with my wife. We're like, yeah, I like it. Let's do it. Prayed about it. And 
we felt like it was what the Lord wanted. It's going to be called Restoration Church. Watson didn't have the direct connections to megachurches that might help fund restoration. But he'd heard about some people who did, a church planting network called Orchard Group. They help connect church plants with well-established churches that have a lot of money, mostly in the South and Midwest. Orchard Group is very selective. Of the thousands of people planting churches every year, the network will only support three or four. And the year Watson applied, he was one of them. They connected him to a few churches that agreed to give twenty dollars or $30,000 a year for three years. Three years because, the data show, if a church plant isn't sustainable after three years, it will likely never be sustainable. And nobody wants to sink their money into a failing church. And so in April 2014, with about $100,000 in capital for the first year, the countdown started. Watson and AJ needed to get this church off the ground to attract enough people to become self-sustaining. At first, they just wanted people to come to a weekly Bible study at Watson's home. So they tried to drum up interest the old-fashioned way, through outreach on the streets, in the neighborhood. Early on, man, <laughs> me and AJ were out on corners, passing out coffee, free coffee on bus stops. We'd make signs. We'd go to, like, the community days. We'd go to, you know, volunteered elementary schools. We were going out um, at least twice a week. We passed out water. We would have our team standing on crowded corners in the hot summer. We were handing out blow pops to people. <laughs> this is Leah Smith, AJ's wife. And I think we put a little message on them. Let the love of God blow you away. So corny. So corny. But we were trying to get people. You kind of felt like anything could happen at any moment. We met a ton of people, a lot of people. We prayed for and prayed with a lot of people, invited a lot of people. Over the course of just a few months, they had conversations with hundreds of people. And occasionally, some of them would take down Watson's address and show up to the Bible study. Watson told us we were the first family to commit. This is Tim Welbeck. He and his wife had been burned before at largely white evangelical churches. And so when they heard Watson's vision for restoration, they were excited. We told him one Saturday afternoon before an outreach that we wanted to be a part of restoration and what restoration was doing. We had interest from all kind of people, people who didn't go to church, people who did go to church, were very interested in us because we, they, we looked different and they liked us, they liked our spirit. For the most part, people were very receptive and even, I'd say, very respectful of the ministry and what we were trying to do. We were very appreciative. But it didn't translate. The goal had always been to reach non-believers, to get them in the door and help them in these spiritual, intangible ways. But the people showing up, for the most part, were already church people. They were coming from other churches. I think in retrospect, what probably hurt us is the thing to bring them to was a Bible study in my house. The first thing it asked me is, is where's your church? Oh, well, we meet in my house. And one lady told me, she said, you guys are a cult. You call me when you get a church. The people in the, your city, in your neighborhood, does not understand church mm -hmm. apart from a building, a preacher, a choir or a praise team, and something that looks like a church service, period. Mm -hmm. Especially, I think, among black people, the more out-of-the-box or avant-garde you are, the less likely you are to be trusted. That was really a, a gut check to us because that was our that was plan A. And we weren't really sure what plan B was. Plan A was like the outreaches. Yeah. I mean, we were going to be the people who were out there on the streets, pastors who are very much present with the people. And that's how we'll grow the church. That didn't work. Hmm. Why not? 
I think people are, have been to church. I think people have done church, and I think people don't have great experiences with church. And because of that, I think the last thing people want to do is waste a day in their mind of the weekend coming to church. Yeah. I think they respect it, and I think they genuinely appreciate it for the most part. They see we're out there not trying to get money from them or anything like that. Uh, we Our intentions are good in their minds, but... No, I mean, I love what y'all are doing, but, you know, okay, maybe I'll come by sometime. They ain't coming to church. They've been to church. Their their uncle started a church 20 years ago, and they had to go sit through three hours on Sunday morning, couldn't wait to get out of there. They couldn't wait till they were 18, and they didn't have to go to church anymore. After the break, can MailChimp help save your soul? Welcome back. Watson and AJ were not having much luck growing their Bible study through outreaches. By January 2015, about eight months in, only about 30 people were coming. To make this thing real and sustainable, they needed to make a big change. They decided to move from doing a Bible study at Watson's to holding a regular weekly service on Sunday mornings. Not only that, they were going to move into a building. They wanted to pick a space that didn't carry any of the negative connotations and baggage of a typical church. Their first attempt was a banquet hall. It was maybe a bit of an overcorrection. We went to this place called Temptations, and we went to Temptations. <laughs> it's, it's called Temptations? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we made all kind of jokes about that, yeah, Temptations. <laughs> the first time we went there, they just had trash everywhere. And we had to, like, clean that stuff up. Hair weaves and bras and open bottles. And we Wait, had, there were literally, like, bras? Yeah, yeah. We saw two bras just on the floor. They tried two preview services there, a sort of beta test of the church, before realizing it was not a good fit. So next, they went to an elementary school cafeteria. That's where they would hold their first ever regular Sunday service. In the church planting world, it's called Launch Sunday. And it's a huge deal for a church plant, a sort of flag on the moon moment, saying, we are here to stay. They put out the word on Facebook, on flyers, they told friends and family, and then they prayed. Were you nervous before? Very. Yeah. Very nervous. <laughs> yes. What was going through your mind? What if no one comes? Why would they come? You know, what do I, what do I tell these donors who gave a lot of money to this? Hmm. And what will I tell my wife? What will I tell my family? All of that. Hey, man, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Watson woke up on the morning of March 22nd, 2015. It had been a year since he first brought AJ on board. He put on his brown corduroy pants, a blue patterned shirt, and a white cardigan. And at 11 a.m., he stepped up to the podium in front of more than 100 cafeteria chairs. And he started to pray. We want at the end of the day, Lord, for you to smile and for you to be pleased. And, and so, Father, we What did the launch look like? How many people were there? Man, I think it might have been maybe 150, maybe more. Wow. Yeah. That must have been huge. That must have felt really great. You did. I cried, actually, you know, and I'm not really a public crier, but I cried that day. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think the Lord is saying to us that there is no perfect church. 
but he has called imperfect people to sit by the beggar who has the bread. He hasn't said come as your, as your perfect self, but he's called dysfunctional, messed up people to come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. So let me not even... After the sermon, AJ stood up to pray. He walked up front, turned around, and he could see it. The room was packed. Amen. Can we give the Lord praise one more time for his word going forth this morning? Amen. Yeah, we maxed out. We absolutely we had standing room. In the, it was standing room in the back. We completely maxed out, and it was like, okay, this is this is great. So when I saw those people, I was like, okay, like this is this is going to be like a regular church type thing. See you next week. Leah Smith again, AJ's wife. I wasn't thinking about it at that time, Eric. I wasn't thinking about church planting. You kind of start small, and then you grow, and then you grow, and then you grow. I wasn't anticipating that in the weeks to follow numbers would drop so, so harshly. The next week, only about 60 people showed up, fewer than half the launch. And then the next week, it was about the same, maybe even a little fewer. It turns out a lot of the people who'd packed the church that very first week were friends and family, people already committed to other churches but came out once to show support. In a lot of neighborhoods, it doesn't actually take that many people to keep a church afloat. 50 or 60 people can be enough if those 50 or 60 people are in a position to give substantially to the church. One of the biggest hurdles for Watson was that he was intentionally trying to grow a church in an area with a much lower income base. 50 or 60 people giving from an income of 50K a year is very different than 50 or 60 people giving from an income of 20K a year or less. There were a few families at Restoration who were able to give at pretty high levels. But the vision was that this church would be a home for people who could not do that. That's why getting the numbers up was so important. For the next year or so, they tried new tactics, more direct forms of networking. We would have invite cards and we would say, listen, how many of you know a friend that isn't a part of a church? Let's invite them to church on this day. We had them all on MailChimp. When we had like big parties, like a Christmas party, we would email them out, and we would see who read them. Very few people would even open them. Occasionally, some people would come. They'd visit for a week, maybe two. And they just never, they would never come back. All these people would visit, like, why wouldn't they stay? I don't know. I don't know. A lot of the times I felt it was something about me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. This is not happening because you're just not a great leader or you're not a great preacher or you're not a great whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. There were periods over the next year where attendance was so low, one person told me it felt like the band was playing for itself. The hardest stretches for Watson? Summer months. Summer months always felt that way. Summer months is when everybody in Philadelphia went to the shore. You know, or everybody traveled. And so attendance-wise, man, it felt like someone took a scalpel and cut massive chunks off the church. Those periods were extremely deflating. I mean, they were dark moments. Sometimes I would battle depression. Most preachers tend to take Monday off because you tend to be more prone to depression on a Monday because Sunday you expend so much of yourself. You know, you're preaching and then you're talking to people, you're counseling people, you have meetings and all that other stuff. But for a church planter in an urban church, 
struggling to move this thing, it was exponentially worse. You're tired, you're busy, you're lonely, you're burnt out. I would wonder, was this God or was this me? Did God really call me to Philly or did he not? And it's not like when work gets hard, everything else lets up. Watson and his wife left most of their family back in Chicago in order to plant this church. And so when they faced their own complicated family stuff, it could be really hard. We had a miscarriage before my third child, and that was very painful. Mm. We had a diagnosis of autism on my first child in, in that same period while starting a church. Like, all of that was a lot of trauma. And I think it probably eventually made me wonder, is my time up? It was May 2017. It had been three years of trying to grow the church. And Watson took a trip back home to Chicago to see his family. That weekend was Mother's Day weekend, actually. And my mother, it was the first time I had been with her on a Mother's Day for some years, like five years. It was so special, you know. And I, I just started to feel like, man, if, the, if I could not le- go back, I wouldn't go back. I loved my church deeply, but I started to feel like the Lord was saying, it's time. So I, start, I, I talked to my wife about it, and my wife said to me, you know, Watson, I, I've been feeling the same way. And then, one Sunday morning last October, Watson got up in front of the Congregation of Restoration, and he gave a sermon that seemed like he was preparing them for the road ahead. This is the part in your life where you cannot find your way. You don't know to go left. You don't know to go right. You don't know who to call. You don't know where to go. This is the in-between times. And in-between times, according to the biblical narrative, have the the ability to either make you or they can break you. After the service, he had all the members stay for a meeting, at which point he said he was officially stepping down and that he'd be going home to Chicago with his family. Taking over the church, AJ. My first, um, my first reaction was no. <laughs> like, no, no. AJ's wife, Leah. No, you're not. Um, I mean, majority African-American church, you're white. Now, it's not like Leah had never seen a white man in a black church. Leah's mother is black, but her father is white. He's also a pastor, and he served in majority black congregations while she was growing up. It's just that AJ is really, really white. AJ, he's not, like, submerged in black culture. He's just not. I mean, the man loves hiking. Not to say that black people don't love hiking, but, I mean, AJ has, wants to hike the Appalachian Trail, okay? So he's, he's, he's different in that way, and I'm like, I've often wondered, man, he's leading this predominantly black church. This is just weird to me, and I felt a little bit self-conscious about it. And still do. Watson, on the other hand, felt good about his decision. AJ had been at the church from its beginning, from its inception. Everybody else came after him. They all knew him. And I had several people who I could have called easily to to take that over. Mm -hmm. But I felt that they wouldn't have had any connection with them. And so I said, man, I think AJ was the best fit for that reason. I had so many insecurities. Like what? Well, about being a white guy, and did I really have a vision? Did I really have a plan? I'm like, I have a bachelor's in Bible. I have a master's of divinity. I've been an intern and resident at, you know, well-known church plants. I have some of the best coaches known. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know how to grow a church. 
Watson moved back to Chicago and he took over another church, one that is 138 years old with hundreds of members and is the furthest thing from a church plant. He preaches in a suit now. And so, nine months ago, A.J. Smith became the white lead pastor of a predominantly black church in Northeast Philly. Right before Watson left, they finished the process of purchasing a new building, their own building, one they bought from a retiring dentist. It's a new site, a new pastor who, despite his self-doubt, is trying to step up. We're kind of starting over. Hmm. I wiped our vision, our mission, our values, and we wrote new mission, vision, and value statements. Really? Yeah. We're here in this neighborhood that we believe is underserved, that has massive needs, that has a huge population who are disconnected from God, who are disconnected from the church. And we got to go out here and say, like, we believe this is true, and we're really going to get bold with this stuff. From a, from a practical standpoint, like, you know, we're not so sexy anymore because we're a three-year-old church that's being replanted. It's people don't want to throw their money at us like they do new churches. So we have to grow the old-fashioned way. Like, What does that mean, like, logistically? Like, how much do you need to grow? I mean, we need to double in size. We absolutely need to double in size this year. Yeah. No doubt about it. We absolutely need to double in size. We're, this thing's either real or it's not. They that wait upon the Lord in an in-between season, they that wait for the Lord to show up will find strength in Him. They that wait on the Lord in times of confusion will find His presence and peace. Is there anybody here that finds yourself in an in-between time where you're calling on God to be your friend, where you're needing God to be your help? It is in those in-between times that you find out that He has a purpose. The Bible is full of stories of people caught in the in-between times. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert after leaving Egypt, not knowing what came next. Jesus himself spent 40 days alone in the wilderness before starting his ministry. Jonah was eaten by a whale. He had to hang out in his stomach for a few days before figuring out his next move. AJ, Leah, and the Congregation of Restoration sit firmly in that tradition, in the in-between. It's a scary place to be. But when you believe to your very core that another person's life and salvation are on the line, what else is there to do but give it everything you've got? Coming up on the next several weeks of startup. I jumped over the bus seat behind me and I just like left and right, left and right, just pounded on top wow. of this kid, like just went nuts on him. Like, I'm not even there. I mean, I, I saw red, I snapped. And I screamed, AJ! And he just sort of blacked out. He had started this phenomenal drug business. He had people working for him dealing drugs, like dozens. And he has gone on to plant an amazing church. I'm looking for a win in life, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think that thought every day. I'm looking for a win, you know. I don't know what I'm doing. I shouldn't even be a pastor. I shouldn't even be in ministry. Like, I should just go back to my old job. Forget this. Seminary was fun, but this isn't for me. This episode was produced by Simone Polanin, Luke Malone, Angelina Mosher, Bruce Wallace, and Sindhu Nayanasambandan. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman, editing by Lulu Miller, Sarah Saracen, and Lisa Pollock. Peter Leonard mixed the episode. Music by Haley Shaw and Peter Leonard. For full music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com startup. 
Special thanks to Ira Glass, Neil Drumming, and Alvin Melleth. I'm Eric Mennel. If you aren't already subscribed to Startup, how are you even listening to this? Go to Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Find out more about the show at gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening.